All right, welcome back to the listener's commentary on the Gospel of Luke. In the listener's commentary, we are really seeking to provide down-to-earth Bible teaching, just step-by-step through the books of the Bible. And this particular volume, we're looking at the Gospel of Luke, working through it so that we can really understand what it's about, hear Jesus in his own context, and hopefully out of that then follow Jesus more fully and more completely. And in this particular section, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. Jesus has just praised God for revealing himself to infants and hiding himself from the wise and the intelligent. That's the preceding context. Well, here in Luke 10, 25 and following, here comes one of those wise and intelligent people. In this case, it's a lawyer, that is an expert in the law, and he comes to test Jesus. He doesn't come to learn from Jesus. He doesn't come as a potential follower of Jesus. He has an agenda, and his agenda is to test Jesus. So that's how this section is connected to the immediate context. Here's a wise and intelligent one who, instead of actually knowing Jesus and seeking to follow Jesus, comes to test him. And this particular section, Luke 10, 25 and following, leads into the well-known parable of the Good Samaritan. And that parable is set right in the middle of this discussion between Jesus and this lawyer, this wise and intelligent one. The discussion begins with a question about how to inherit eternal life. And in view of the, the motive attributed to this, uh, this lawyer, it seems as if he, he just wants Jesus to enter into this debate and to hear what he says because he thinks Jesus' teaching is perhaps a bit suspect. Um, the answer to that question about how to inherit eternal life then leads to a question about who's my neighbor? And that latter question then becomes the focus of the parable of the Good Samaritan and the brief follow-up discussion as Luke has recorded it. So that's the context, and let's jump in and look at the details. Verse 25, Now behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And so the lawyer is an expert in the Old Testament law. Not only does he know it backwards and forwards, but he's he's recognized as a formal expert in giving legal rulings and legal interpretations of the Old Testament law. How do you respond? What do you do? What does this particular law mean? What are the implications of the law in their time and place? So he's an expert in the Old Testament law. And Luke tells us that he came to Jesus to put him to the test. He's testing him. Uh, he wants to hear Jesus's understanding of the law. He wants to know where Jesus stands on certain things. And his specific question is, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Uh, this particular type of question was actually debated and discussed among Jewish rabbis as they boiled down the law. What was really the essence of it? And what did people need to do to inherit eternal life? And by the phrase eternal life, he means the life of the age to come, the, the life of the world to come when God restored all things and made all things new. Who would be included in that world? Who would inherit that life? That's the question he's asking. 
And Jesus replies to him in verse 26 and says, what's written in the law? How does it read to you? So Jesus puts the ball back into his court. He, he really refers the question back to him. Instead of giving his own answer, Jesus says, well, you're the expert in the law. What do you think? How does it read to you? And the lawyer in verse 27 answered and said, and he gives a summary, and he gives two commands. His answer, his summary is, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Some scholars suggest that perhaps he'd heard Jesus offer the summary before, because this is Jesus' very summary of the law. We know that from Matthew chapter 22, and this is how Jesus would summarize it. And so some scholars have suggested that perhaps this lawyer has actually heard Jesus offer this summary before, and so he simply restates what he's heard Jesus said, and maybe he's actually a little bit in sync with him. We don't really know. We just know he's come to test him. And rabbis typically had their own summary of the law. And as noted, this was Jesus. So it's possible that he had heard this before from Jesus. We just don't know. The first command in his summary is from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. It's the so-called Shema. The word Shema derives from the very first word of Deuteronomy chapter 6, 4, which is here. Hear, O Israel. You shall love the Lord your God, and then gives all these different things. So love the Lord your God with your heart, your soul, your strength, and your mind. In other words, with every part of you, with all your faculties and every capacity that you have. Your heart is really the control center of the person and the personality in uh, Jewish understanding. Your soul is your nephesh, your life source, right? Like that which makes you you. Love God with that. Love God with your strength, all your physical ability, your physical strength, and all your mind means all your intellect and all your reasoning and all your thinking capacity. So love God with every part of you. That's the first one he cites. The second one, love your neighbor as yourself. That's uh, from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. Leviticus 19, 18 says this, the full version of it. You shall not take vengeance nor hold any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And so uh, this is the summary that this lawyer offers. Jesus' reply, being that this really is Jesus' summary, at least uh, as he would give it. And again, we don't know for sure if the lawyer knew that or not, but this is the same summary Jesus would get if he, if he were asked. And so Jesus reply is affirmative to this man. Verse 28, Jesus said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. And that's very much in sync with the tenor of the Old Testament law. The law held out life as the blessing for keeping it. The law, because God is wise, made the world and knows how mankind and the world is to work. The law said, if you do the law, things will go well for you. You will prosper. You will flourish. So it held out life as the blessing for keeping it. And so Jesus says, do this, do this, and you will live. This is what God really is calling you to do. In fact, uh, in Matthew 22, verse 40, Jesus says the whole law hangs on these two, that all the other instructions and all the other commands in the Old Testament law hang on these two commands that this lawyer cites here. Uh, well, the lawyer 
At this point, his test of Jesus is not going exactly as anticipated. So verse 29, he has a response back to Jesus. And this is what verse 29 says, but wanting to justify himself. So driven by a need to make himself out to be in the right to make himself out look good, right? Wanting to justify himself, he said to Jesus, who's my neighbor? Since the command is to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor as yourself, well, who is my neighbor? And once again, this was a fairly common debate among Jewish teachers and experts in the law like this fellow. And the reason it was a debate was because of what Leviticus 19 in total said. You actually hear it there in verse 18 um, that this man quotes. Verse 18 says, uh, anyone among your people, right? Don't hold a grudge against the sons of your people. Well, that sounds like a fellow Israelite. In fact, verse 17 in Leviticus 19 mentions a fellow Israelite, right? Like, Do these things for a fellow Israelite. But elsewhere in Leviticus 19, the chapter mentions the foreigner and the stranger living among you. In fact, verses 34 and 30 or 33 and 34 of Leviticus 19 says this. When a stranger resides in your land, you shall do him no wrong. The stranger who resides with you shall be to you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you are strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So in the, the total context of Leviticus 19, who is the neighbor? Is it just the, the one of the sons of your people? Or do you take the total context of Leviticus 19 and it includes the stranger who lives among you? That's the question and that's the debate that the expert in the law is trying to, you know, now create ambiguity, trying to create some confusion, like there it's not clear who your neighbor is. So right, as a way to kind of let himself off the hook and justify himself. So that's the question, that's the debate, and the parable of the Good Samaritan is Jesus' answer. And so beginning in verse 30, Jesus tells a parable, the well-known well and so-called parable of the Good Samaritan. Verse 30, Jesus replied and said, and he launches into the parable, here is the parable, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. You always go down from Jerusalem to Jericho, not only because literally, physically, Jericho, Jerusalem is up you know, on a mountain or on a hillside, and Jericho is down in a deep canyon, more on that in a second, but also religiously, uh, for the Jews, Jerusalem was always up because it was the mountain of the Lord, and so you went there to worship. So a man's going down from Jerusalem, to Jericho, and he encountered robbers. They stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. So the, the setting for the parable is the road between Jerusalem and Jericho. This man is traveling down from it. The implicit uh, assumption is this man is probably a Jew leaving Jerusalem. He is perhaps a pilgrim or a worshiper of some sort who maybe has been worshiping, worshiping at the temple and now is returning to Jericho. Um, the road between Jerusalem and Jericho, we have to at least be able to picture that road in order to understand the scene and the setting and what happens next. And so that road is a 17-mile long road. Now, it's a steep road, in this case going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, a steep road 
descent down to Jericho. Jerusalem sits at about 2,300 feet above sea level. Jericho sits 1,300 feet below sea level. So over the course of the 17 miles of this road, uh, there is a 3,600-foot elevation difference. It's a pretty significant elevation difference, right? Um, and so he is traveling down this steep road. And when you think road, don't think a wide, you know, uh, stone paved road. Think more of a path through barren, rocky desert dirt. That's what we have. We have more of a path, well-used, well-traveled, and in some places wide, in some places quite narrow. But what basically what we have is a, a path um, through the desert, um, up through the canyon ridges and all the way along through the rocks. And because it was out in the middle of nowhere, because it was rocky and barren, it actually had a reputation for being the haunt of robbers and brigands and thieves and all of that. So Jesus's story is set in a true-to-life context where people knew that this road was oftentimes a little precarious and a little dangerous. And so here's this man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Perhaps the natural assumption of the audience, because of the nature of the road, is this man is foolish for traveling down this road by himself, whatever he gets, he deserves. We don't know, but that's sort of the nature of the road, and that's sort of the feel of the time and place. And so he's traveling down this road. Robbers uh, jump him, come upon him. Notice what happens. They stripped him, they beat him, and they went away leaving him for half dead. And so this man is stripped and beaten and half dead. The fact that he's stripped is significant because that means he has no clothes. Who is he? Clothes often identify both what kind of ethnicity you came from, what cultural background you came from, as well as your status. So with him being naked, who is he? What kind of person is he? What's his background? Is he worthy of help? Is he someone who would fit into the category of my neighbor? Who knows? He's just a broken, beaten, half-dead human being out in the middle of nowhere along a road. That's the setting. That's the situation for this story. The story continues in verse 31. And by coincidence, a priest was going down on that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And so the priest has recently finished his time of service in Jerusalem, according to the calendar and the rotation of priestly service. So he is leaving Jerusalem, and he's heading home. That's the assumption in the story. Uh, priests uh, had a, there was a very large priestly community in Jericho. They had their rotation of when they would serve in Jerusalem. So this priest presumably has finished up his time of service in Jerusalem, and now he's heading back home. He is on that the very same road, heading down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Because of the nature of the road, because of how narrow it is, we're not like he's just crossing the street and going to the sidewalk on the other side. No, he. this is a path. He's literally having to make an effort to get around this guy who is left there. He's like, don't want to get near him, don't want to touch him. And from the priest's perspective, he's got some rationale for that. He's finished his time of service. He's on his way home. He hasn't been home or presumably with his family for some time. 
Um, and so he, he doesn't want to render himself unclean and thus have to quarantine himself when he gets back down to Jericho. Um, he, because he's a priest and important, probably has an entourage of people with him. He wants to set a good example for them. They don't know who this man is. Is he a neighbor? So it's best just to pass by this man and let him go. And so he made a deliberate effort to not help this man. Likewise, verse 32, a Levite uh, was going down that road. Uh, when he came to the place and saw the man, he passed by on the other side as well. So the Levite makes the same intentional decision and the same deliberate effort as the priest to pass him by. Uh, who's a Levite? Well, the Levite was essentially a a assistant to the priest. So the priest was his social superior. The priest was his religious superior. Uh, the Levite served in the temple as um, a helper to the priests. Um, they were musicians, they were gatekeepers, they were janitors, right? They did other mundane and routine tasks uh, to help pull off all the activities of the temple service that the priests had to carry out. So they were assistants to the priests. Um, and the probable assumption, at least according to people familiar with this road and familiar with the customs, people like Kenneth Bailey, the probable assumption of the listeners of Jesus' story in the original context is that this Levite would know that there was a priest ahead of him on the road. Um, Kenneth Bailey points out that you just don't travel a road like this in the Middle East without at least a local report. Who's been on the road? Uh, what, what, what are the conditions of the road? Any reports of you know, thuggery and robbery on the road? Right, That there would be at least some sort of local report. And since a priest was a significant person, there is a good chance they would have reported, well, a, a priest just started heading down the road as well. Now, do we know for sure? No. Bailey's saying that's just the likely assumption of Jesus' original audience because of the nature of travel, particularly travel down a road like this in Jesus' time and place. Whether that's the case or not, not sure. Um, but if so, it really does bring it to life. He's, he would know that the priest had passed this man by since the priest was his social superior. Well, if the priest didn't help him, then I would not want to upstage my my, you know, my priestly social superior and my religious superior, and if he didn't think he was worthy of help, then why should I help him? And that's quite possible, and that's quite likely the assumptions in the story. We just don't know for sure. What we do know for sure is, in the nature of the story, the Levite coming down this road, who represents, again, temple service, uh, worship of God, just like the priest, he too makes a deliberate action not to help him, and leaves him behind. Now, what happens next is a plot twist, is surprising, and the original audience would have never expected Jesus' story to go this way. So verse 33, after the Levite passes by on the other side, but a Samaritan, but a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him. Notice the Samaritan is on a journey. We're not actually told whether he's going up the road or he's going down the road. He's just generically on a journey, happens to be on that same road. Um, and when he came upon him, he felt compassion for him. So the third person to come along in Jesus' story 
is the Samaritan. This is not what Jesus' audience would have expected, right? They would have expected in the the categories of their mind another average ordinary Jew. That's just the way life was organized. There were priests, Levites, and the people of Israel, right? That's that's that was their thinking. That's what you would expect, particularly on this road, particularly in Israelite territory, right? Like not a Samaritan. No, that's a shocking plot twist. And we need to remember who the Samaritans were. Uh, Yes, this is traditionally called the parable of the Good Samaritan, which in and of itself is a little problematic because it's a bit of a pejorative because it would suggest that all the other Samaritans were bad Samaritans, right? Um, And the reason we say that is because of, from the perspective of the Jews, uh, there was that's the way they felt about Samaritans. Samaritans were bad. Samaritans were awful. And there was long-standing, deep-seated tension and hostility between the Jews and the Samaritans. The Samaritans were, you know, they were unfaithful. The Samaritans were awful. The Samaritans deserved the wrath of God. The Samaritans could never inherit eternal life. The Samaritans certainly weren't good. Um, that was that's the assumption of Jesus' original audience. But here's a Samaritan. He's on a journey. He saw he sees this unidentifiable, uh, naked, beaten, half dead man, and he felt compassion for him. And here's what he did. His compassion moved him to action. This is what he did. Verse thirty four. He came to him. He bandaged up his wounds. So he he whatever the man needed. He he. Bandaged up his wounds. Did he rip some of his own clothes, his own robe? Maybe his he had a bedroll and he ripped. Who knows? But he did whatever he needed to do to bandage up this man's wound. He poured oil and wine on them. So he took some of his own resources, oil and wine, used those um, as medicine, which was fairly common in their day and age. The wine as a disinfectant because of the alcohol to clean it, the oil as a salve to put upon it. And so he poured oil and wine on his wounds. He put him on his own animal. So he picks the man up and lays him across his own animal, his donkey or his horse, whatever he's traveling with, right? And now he's going to walk. Instead of ride, um, he is going to walk with this man on his animal. And he brought him to an inn, presumably there in Jericho, right? He brought him to an inn and took care of him. The word inn means it's a formal inn. It's not it's not like the, the word inn that we saw in Luke chapter 2 that doesn't really mean inn. That just means guest room. This is actually the word for inn. So this is a public inn where you could rent a room. And so this man uh, puts the wounded man, the Samaritan puts the wounded man on his own animal and, and goes uh, it, presumably to Jericho, back down the road, and um, rents a room at an actual hotel and takes care of him. And again, Kenneth Bailey, very familiar with the cultural context, suggests that taking him to an inn in a Jewish city would have been a real risk for the Samaritan. Like, you're riding into town as a despised and hated enemy with a wounded man over your horse off a road in Jewish territory, and the assumption is, you know, like, did you hurt this man? What did you do to this man, right? And so just riding into town would have invoked potential retaliation and hostility from the city. 
Um, he rides into town. He comes to the inn. He rents a room. He brings the man into the room, and he took care of him all the rest of that day and overnight until the next morning. So think of what this man has done in his compassion for him, how he's been inconvenienced. He, in some sense, found bandages, made bandages for his wound. He used his own resources, oil and wine, to uh, take care of his wounds. He put him on his own animal and changed his plans and went back in, into Jerusalem or went to Jerusalem. He paid money for a room in a hotel, and he spent the rest of the day and the evening making sure he was going to make it, getting him over that critical time period, and took care of him. Not only that, here's what he does. The next morning, after taking care of him all night, the next uh, day, he took him, verse 35, uh, took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, take care of him, Whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. So this man has to go finish his journey, but he's going to come back and check on this guy. He gives the innkeeper two denarii. Um, technically, a denarius was about a day's wage. So this is two full days' wages. Um, some experts in the you know the cost of things estimate this is two to three weeks worth of care for this man. Like this. Uh, approaches a, not just a day or two. This is a couple weeks at least worth of care here at the hotel. So this Samaritan has taken out a significant amount of money, gave it to the innkeeper, said, you take care of him. I'll be back. If it costs extra, if you spend more for food or anything else on him, when I get back, I will, I will repay you. I will add up to you. And he leaves. Um, this Samaritan has expended an awful lot of his own time, energy, resources, and money to help this uh, naked, unidentifiable man. And so Jesus' question, the point of the parable, the answer to the lawyer's question, remember his question that started this was, well, who's my neighbor? And he's wanting to justify himself. And that question grows out of, well, love your neighbor as yourself, which grows out of, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And so all of that together, now Jesus looks, after wrapping up the story, looks at the lawyer and says, verse 36, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? Was it the priest? Was it the Levite? Or was it the Samaritan? Who, uh, who proved to be a neighbor? And the lawyer said, the one who showed compassion to him. Notice the lawyer's response. He can't even say the Samaritan. He can't even bring himself to acknowledge that. It's just the one who showed compassion to him. He has to be honest, and he has to admit, out of those three, only the Samaritan was neighborly. Only the Samaritan actually loved him and cared for him. And so he says, the one who showed compassion to him. And Jesus said to him, go and do the same. And so, who's my neighbor? What's the man learn? Well, the neighbor is not who fits into the category of neighbor, and thus, who am I actually responsible and obligated to love? The, to be a neighbor means don't, don't put people into that category. Just be neighborly. Love Whoever comes across your path, 
show compassion to the people in your sphere of activity and your sphere of influence instead of categorizing who's my neighbor and thus that's the the only people I'm responsible to love. That's the way the debate went. Is my neighbor only my fellow Jews? If it's my fellow Jews, who really counts as one of these brothers among me? Is it only faithful Jews or is it all Jews, right? Or does it go beyond that even to strangers and foreigners? Like, who's my neighbor? That's the nature of the debate in Jesus' day. And Jesus' response to that is, wrong question, wrong answer. You're thinking about it all wrong. It's not, who's my neighbor? It's, how can I be a neighbor? And so he says, go and do the same. Go and be a neighbor by loving whoever God brings across your path. That's what it means to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You love God and you love your neighbor by being a neighbor. That's what the law is all about. Read it and learn from it, right? Be a good neighbor. Love whoever God brings across your path in whatever way you can. Meet whatever need you need to meet and whatever needs you're able to meet. That's what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. That's what it means to be a good neighbor.